The Bible contains 66 books. I try to encourage you to read all 66 every year. I think it's pretty obvious that a lot of books in the Bible are read far more often than others. I would say probably Psalms and the four Gospels would be some of the most read scriptures. Uh, and then some books are very rarely read. And I want to speak to you out of one this morning that probably falls in that category, and that would be the book of Ezekiel. Along with Ezekiel, you probably could throw in Leviticus, and Numbers, maybe First and Second Chronicles, books like that. But I can assure you those books, while they may have some tedious reading in them, contain some real gems. So if you read the Bible all the way through each year, then you will read at least one time each book in the Bible. And the book of Ezekiel is very important. We read in Romans 15, 3, where Paul says, those things which were written aforetime was written for our learning. Well, when Paul wrote that, Ezekiel had been written in a foretime. So the book of Ezekiel is written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, Ezekiel was a priest. We're going to look in chapter 1, the book of Ezekiel, this morning. Ezekiel was a priest whom God called to be a prophet. There were others like that. Jeremiah was that way. Zechariah was that way. Even John the Baptist. These were raised in priestly families, expected to follow in the footsteps of their priestly fathers and grandfathers. But God called them to do something else. So he calls Ezekiel. The name of Ezekiel simply means God strengthens. And God was going to strengthen this man to do what he was going to have him to do. So when this book opens up in chapter 1, you will find that Ezekiel is 30 years old when God calls him. 30 years old was the age in the Old Testament, especially for the priesthood, when they were put into active service. He's by the river Chabar. The river Chabar was a river, smaller river than Euphrates. Euphrates was a very well-known river in Babylon. And the river Chabar was a river, or you might say even a canal type body of water that flowed southward from the river Euphrates and southward of Babylon. And you're going to find that's where Ezekiel's at when his day uh, gets interrupted by God's call. His life will never be the same after this experience. And he's down by the riverside meeting with the captives. These were the exiles of Israel who had gone into captivity, in Babylonian captivity as uh, the Babylonians had come down to Jerusalem and taken them captive. And he's meeting with them by the river. I read in the book of Acts in chapter 16 where the apostle Paul was led by the Spirit of God to a certain place in Macedonia by the riverside. And there at the riverside there was a woman named Lydia. She was a solo purple of the city of Thyatira. And she and some others had met by the riverside for prayer. And Paul met with them. That's what I envision here as I begin to look in this first chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is meeting as a priest at this time with a number of those captives by the river. It seemed like uh, the river was a, just a pleasant place to be. It was a place of peace and tranquility as they were in their captivity. They were very discouraged. And when people are discouraged, they need people to meet with them to encourage one another. And I can see that happening here as they had met, no doubt, for prayer. And Ezekiel is with them. And then we find in verse 3 where it says, the word of God came expressly unto Ezekiel. There were others there. The word of God did not come to the others. The word of God came expressly unto Ezekiel, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, the word of God gives us enlightenment. The word of God gives us information. The word of God is very profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, And all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable, all scripture. Profitable doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, as might be mature. Not sinless, but mature. The man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is a thorough furnisher. There's no way that you can improve it. You can't improve it by adding to it. You can't improve it by taking away from it. I remember Reader's Digest came out years ago uh, with the Bible, and they say it had greatly reduced it. They'd taken a lot of the insignificant stuff out of it. That was nothing but blasphemy in the face of God. 
to think that God would have a book written with insignificant, irrelevant things in it. But that was the appeal. It's a shorter book. We've, we've done you the trouble of going through and removing all the insignificant stuff out of it, and now it won't take you as long to read it. You'd be surprised how people are so deceived and fooled with such things as that. Surely Reader's Digest, I mean, that's a reputable company, right? Reader's Digest would never do something like that. Well, they did. <laughs> okay, they did. So all Scripture is given by the of God, and it's profitable for these various things. So the Word of God came expressly unto Ezekiel. The Word of God will enlighten our minds. That's what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 1 and 15, that the Spirit of God would give those he was writing to the spirit of wisdom and revelation, uh, enriching them with the enlightenment of God's Word. And then the expression, the hand of the Lord was upon him. That phrase is found numerous times in the Bible, especially the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra. Nehemiah and Ezra had the very difficult job of going back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the wall and rehang the gates and restore some things that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And you'll find that expression used frequently that the hand of the Lord was upon them. In fact, in Nehemiah, the expression, the good hand of God was upon them. That shows, again, an expression of the providence of God. But that's not just an Old Testament expression. You can come over to the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 21. And you'll find where the writers telling us about some of the persecuted disciples of the Lord at this particular time. How the Lord was blessing them, how the Lord was prospering them. It says, and the hand of the Lord was upon them. You can read of Elijah's experience in the last part of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 17, I believe it is, or 18. And you'll find where he's on top of Mount Carmel, and it hadn't rained for three and a half years. And now God is going to send rain once again, and you're going to find where he tells Ahab to get thee down from the mountain if I hear the abundance of rain. And we find Ahab going down the mountain in his chariot. But the Bible says Elisha ran ahead of him. Now, Ahab was in a chariot. Elisha was on foot. But Elisha ran ahead of him. The Bible says, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. Just simply telling us that God is blessing. You can see the hand of God in somebody's life. The hand of God on someone as they trying to serve him. You should be able to see that in the people's lives. So the word of God came expressly, personally, individually to Ezekiel. And the hand of the Lord was upon him. We're told in the first verse, while he was by the river, that the heavens were opened and he saw visions of God. Now, when heaven's open, you, you see some things you're not going to see when heaven's not open. <laughs> you go to Revelation chapter 4 in the opening verses, first couple of verses, and the apostle John, when he's on the Isle of Patmos, he says, and I looked and I saw a door in heaven was opened. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And there were revelations that came to John when the door of heaven was opened unto him. In the book of Malachi, in chapter 3, the Lord tells him in verse 16, to bring all your tithes into the storehouse and see if I'll not bless you and open up the windows of heaven unto you. And blessings shall come forth where you'll not have the capacity to receive them all. Uh, God's able to do that. I, I like to read the verses in the Bible where it speaks about the windows of heaven and the doors of heaven and heaven itself being opened up because I know something really wonderful is about to be revealed to me and it was going to be revealed to those under those circumstances, you see. So he says, the heavens were open and the visions of God, plural, the visions of God came unto me. Now God is going to show Ezekiel some things here that's going to strengthen him for the task that's before him. And when God called Ezekiel to be a prophet, it came at a great time because there was a lot of false prophets in that day. And a false prophet will tell you things that they think you want to hear. They will tell you things uh, to tickle your ears, so to speak. They will tell you things that will have an appeal to them. And the false prophets had a message. It was just about, uh, it was consistent. The false prophets had this consistent message to the exiles that God's not going to leave you here very long. Uh, God's going to deliver you, and you're going to return triumphantly back to Jerusalem, and your deliverance most likely is going to come from Egypt. Of all places for deliverance to come from, the Bible makes it very clear that we're not to go down to Egypt for help. That's one of the things that the Israelites were doing in this particular day. They were reaching out for help from various sources other than God, other nations other than God. 
They made an appeal to the Assyrians. They made an appeal to the Egyptians. They made an appeal to the Philistines. And that's all for us as you continue to read this, this wonderful book. God was very displeased with that. God had always been the only help Israel needed was their great God, the true and living God. He was very displeased with this. But the false prophet said, deliverance is coming soon and you'll return triumphantly to Jerusalem. But you see, when Ezekiel is called at age of 30, there's a man who went just before him called Jeremiah. When Ezekiel was born, Jeremiah was already ministering in Jerusalem. He'd been ministering for about four years. Now he's been ministering for about 34 years in Jerusalem. And about the time God calls Ezekiel as a prophet to go and deliver this message in Judah to Jerusalem and the inhabitants thereof, Jeremiah's book was probably just had been written and was out there for the people to read. I don't have any doubt Ezekiel read the book of Jeremiah. And what did Jeremiah say in his book? He had told the Israelites, plain and simple, you're going to be here 70 years. You're here because you were disobedient. You're here because God's judgment is upon you. You didn't let the land lay out every seven years as God's command was. 490 years had gone by. And 70 and 490 is 70, and so you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Get used to it. Live a normal life here. Raise your family. Sow your crops, etc., etc. You'll be here at 70 years. Not 50 years, not 65, not even 69 or 71 over. It's going to be 70 years exactly. And then the Lord will judge these Chaldeans. He will raise up the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus. And the Chaldeans shall be defeated, and Cyrus who, of course, was not a Jew, a Gentile, God says, I will put it in the heart of Cyrus to enable you to go back to your homeland and be restored. God tells them that in the book of Jeremiah. But the false prophets were disregarding this. The false prophets were you know, just uh, uh, neglecting this. And, and things haven't changed in this present day. You look in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, first verse. And the Apostle Peter tells those he's writing to, this is New Testament language, New Testament days. He says, and as there were false prophets among them, there should be false teachers among you. We've had false teachers among the Lord's people who claim to be people of God for 2,000 years. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 14. And the Apostle says that there are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into false apostles of Christ. Therefore, it's no great thing if Satan himself transform himself into an angel of light. Now, Satan is darkness, but he has the power to transform himself into an angel of light, and therefore his ministers as ministers of righteousness. In other words, Satan can transform himself into an angel of light for deception, and those who are his agents, so to speak. See, from time to time, I preach that God is the only omnipresent being there is. Satan is not omnipresent, but he does have worldwide influence because he has a lot of agents. And those agents transform themselves as ministers of righteousness. They come as if they're ministers of righteousness. And you'd be surprised at the false doctrine and the heresies that are spread from famous men in this world in religious circles. So it hasn't changed. You go to Ephesians chapter 4, look in verse 11. When he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying the body of Christ. That's why God gave these gifts. That's why you have gifts today is for the perfecting of the saints, for the maturing of the saints. Yeah, listen to him again. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints and for the edification of the people of God. He says, we all come together in the unity of the faith that we might grow up uh, and mature, uh, you know, in the fullness of Christ and the knowledge of Christ. He says that we be not children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. False doctrine comes in every direction, just like the wind does. That we be not children tossed to and fro. What wind, you see the wind, a piece of paper in the yard, see how the wind can lift it up and throw it over here and throw it over there, one thing and another has no direction, does it? That we be not children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and the cutting craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There are a lot of deceivers out here in the world. Now, in, in the field of religion, as well as everything else, there's many deceivers out here in the world. But you see, the gifts that God's give, given you, if you 
uh, listen to them uh, and, uh, and apply yourself to the truths in God's word will shelter you and, and fortify you from such people as this. Don't think they don't exist. You know, sometimes people read this, I think, they think, well, that's the way it was in that day. We don't have them today. You've always had them and you always will. Okay. So the word of God came expressly unto him and the hand of the Lord was upon him. And he saw visions of God. And he's going to see a whirlwind and a cloud. He's going to see four living creatures. He's going to see a firmament. He's going to see a throne. And the last verse of this first chapter is going to tell you why. We'll get to it after a while. Ezekiel is going to see a view of God that I want you to see this morning. Ezekiel saw a view of God that's important for all God's people to see in times of great discouragement. See, he was thinking on the people in that day, surely why, why are we in this mess? <laughs> why are we in this mess in America today? I, I don't think I have to tell you why we're in this mess. I believe I'm speaking to intelligent people this morning. Keep up with enough to know why we're in this mess. We've turned our backs on God, period. Turn now back on the Lord Jesus Christ. So why are we in this mess? If you read Psalms 73 and 74, I think you'll find two Psalms that contain information pertinent to what we're talking about this morning. We won't take time to go into it. Psalm 74, 1 opens up like this. What a question to the people. It says, O Lord God, why hast thou forsaken us? Have you ever thought maybe like that? The disciples one time were in a storm on the sea in a ship. And Christ was in the ship, asleep in the bottom of the ship. What was there? What was their cry? They said, Master, awake. Does not thy care that we perish? Are you going to ask the Lord, does he not care? <laughs> but I wouldn't be too hard on them. Uh, you know, when you get in the, in the thick of trials and tribulations in the midst of storms and conflicts, one thing or another, uh, your, weak, your, weak, your, your human flesh, your human nature is so weak, if you're not careful, you'll begin to think that God doesn't care about you. But I'm telling you, God does care about you, and there's never been a time when he didn't. Now, but here's the thinking was, are we not God's chosen people? Yes, they were. God had formed and created the nation of Israel. Has he not always defeated our enemies? Yes, he had. Did he not bring us out of the land of Egypt? Yes, he did. Did he not destroy the Egyptians in the Red Sea? Yes, he did. Did he not bring us out of there dry shot without the loss of water? Yes, he did. Did he not care for us in the wilderness, giving us water out of a rock and uh, manna and quails from on high? Yes, he did. Did he not bring us into the promised land, the land of Canaan and plant us? Yes, he did. Did he not choose the city of Jerusalem as the holy city? Yes, he did. Did he not have the temple built by Solomon to replace the tabernacle in Jerusalem there where they came for true worship? Yes, he did. He did all of that. What's the situation right now? They're in exile. They're not in their land. The land of promise, the land of Canaan has been devastated. Jerusalem is occupied by the enemy. The precious and valuable things in the city of Jerusalem has been taken out and brought up to Babylon. Don't even, they're not where they're supposed to be. And now here's the people of God, the Israelites, and they're not in the land of promise. They're not in Jerusalem. They're up in Babylon, my friends, as captives. So is this really the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Yes, he is. God's not only a God of love and God of power and God of deliverance. God's a God of judgment and a God of chastisement. And those Israelites are there because they were stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious, and because they were given to idolatry. That was the main sin, I think, to be set them time and time again was the sin of idolatry and, of course, the sin of immorality. They were given over to immoral practices from time to time because they were influenced by the nations around them, influenced by the ungodly around them. That's why God, when he put them in the land of Canaan, told them to drive every nation out of there, break down their images and their pictures, destroy them, and burn them with fire because he knew it would have an influence upon them. So the first thing Ezekiel sees, he sees a whirlwind coming from the north. Well, you know, that's where the Babylonians came. They came from the north. He sees a whirlwind coming from the north and a cloud in the whirlwind, and a fire in the cloud enfolding itself, and a brightness around the cloud. Now when you read this, and the things I want to speak to you about this morning, if you just read the book of Ezekiel, you read the first chapter of Ezekiel, uh, and you're going to read these things without comparing Scripture with Scripture, <laughs> you're going to walk away shaking your head. You're going to feel a little confused, but that's why the Bible is not to be read like an ordinary book. There's other places in the Bible. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible itself. So I got to go to a few other places to kind of figure out what's going on here. 
Well, I go to Proverbs 1.27 and I find that where God, when God sent a whirlwind, it was usually a sign of his judgment. There's other various places, but I'm gonna, I'll just read this to you from the book of uh, Isaiah. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 66, verse 15. For the Lord will come, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to wringer his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. I can give you several other references, but I think this should give you the picture right here. This is exactly what Ezekiel sees. And then he says he saw four living creatures. These four living creatures are described over here in the 10th chapter, the 15th verse of Ezekiel, as being cherubims. And they had the body of a man. They had four faces, they had four wings, and under the wings were the hands of the four men. And every, they went straight forward. Their feet was like the, uh, the straight, had straight feet like the soles of a calf. And they went straight forward and they went whatsoever the Spirit went to lead them. Cherubims, have, uh, it's a pretty interesting study if you want to do that in the Bible. First time they're mentioned is way back here in the book of Genesis. Remember when God drove Adam out of the Garden of Eden? When Adam transgressed God's law? God drove him out of the Garden of Eden and he placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword turning in every direction to keep it where man could not enter back into the Garden of Eden. Cherubims were creatures. You find them in the tabernacle. You come to the 26th chapter and you're going to find where the tabernacle had curtains all around. Of course, you know it was a rectangular structure. He told them to make curtains out of fine linen, goat's hair, etc., and embroidered on all those curtains were cherubims. And in the 25th chapter, you're going to find a list of seven articles of furniture that went in that tabernacle. And the one that was in the holiest of the holies was a mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded. It was the tables of the law and the golden pot of manna, all pointing to Christ. On it is the mercy seat. That mercy seat was not for the seat of the priest. That mercy seat was the seat of God. God came down from heaven. That was his seat. And on each end of that mercy seat were two cherubims. And they stretched forth their wings and they touched above that mercy seat. When you see the construction of the temple in Solomon's day, you're going to find that the cherubims were all over, all over that temple. These cherubims that we're talking about here we're told they had the face of a man, they had the face of an ox, they had the face of a lion, they had the face of an eagle. When God created mankind on this earth, when he, well, when he done the work of creation, on the sixth and final day of creation, he created who? He created man. I think one reason he waited to create man last is so man couldn't go back and tell how he helped God in all the work of creation. How he told God to create this, and how God to create that, and this, that, and the other, and what to create. See, everything was already created except for man, and he put man here last. But man was the highest order of God's creation. Higher than all the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea, and everything else. Man is God's highest order of creation. you'll find that the lion is regarded, has always been regarded as the greatest of the uh, wild beasts of the field. And you'll find that the oxen has always been sim uh, uh, symbolic of the strongest domestic animal, especially in biblical days. And the eagle has always been regarded as the greatest bird of the fowls of the air. You know, that's our national bird for the United States of America, the eagle. It's interesting to me, too, that when God destroyed the earth the first time in Noah's day by a flood, after the flood was over, you're going to find where God made a covenant with Noah and his seed after him. And that covenant was he was never going to destroy this earth again by a flood. He didn't say he would never destroy the earth again. He said never destroy this earth again by a flood. When I read in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, I find where this earth is going to be destroyed again, not with water, but with fire. 
This earth does have an end date. God knows the end date. Man doesn't. Now you hear all these date setters and one thing and another. So far they've all been wrong, haven't they? Because you know why they're wrong? Because God has never revealed to man when that time's coming. That's why they've always been wrong. And they always will be wrong. Only God himself knows when the last day's coming, but the last day will come. And that's been Bible doctrine ever since the days of Mary and Martha and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mention them because when the Lord came to the grave of Lazarus, who'd been dead already four days and Martha met him, uh, the Lord told Mary, he said, oh, excuse me, Martha, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, he says, thou believest these things? She says, I believe he shall rise again at the resurrection in the last day. Martha believed in the last day. She believed in the resurrection. There's coming the last day, and 2 Peter says, In the last day, the heaven shall melt with fervent heat, and all the elements shall be dissolved. And he says, Therefore, what commander of persons ought we ought to be if we understand these truths here? The day's coming when the when fire shall destroy everything. That ought to affect our thinking, which affects our behavior, you see. So the Lord made a covenant with Noah. He never, in his seed, which means you and I, that he never destroy this earth by a flood again. But he also promised, as long as the earth remaineth, there shall be seed time and harvest, there shall be night and day, there shall be summer and winter, there shall be cold and heat. Now, you think what you want to about global warming. I don't doubt there might be some truth to something along these lines, but one thing I know for a solid fact is global warming is not going to destroy us. I know that for a fact. This earth will remain till the last day, till the day the Lord Jesus Christ will declare the end shall be. It's going to last to that long. And there will always be night and day. It will always be summer and winter. It will always be cold and heat. And there will always be sea time. And there will always be harvest. Now you can mark that down. Don't be afraid of all these things that people are always throwing out there. Karen told me this morning, she said, I got a verse of scripture I want you to preach on. I said, well, what is it? She says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Well, maybe I can preach a little this morning. He certainly has not given us that. You know where the spirit of fear comes from? It comes from your human nature. It comes from listening to other people other than God in his word. It comes from listening to the so-called experts of this world. That's where fear comes from. And God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us the spirit, what, of power? and of love, and a sound mind. Three things that only God can give, no other source, the spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Well, I preached a little bit on it, honey, anyway. All right. So, I might bring it back around again in a minute, Lord willing. Uh, but nevertheless, God made a covenant with Noah and his seed after him. Also, he made a covenant with the fish of the sea, and the fowls of the air, and the beasts of the field. Fowls of the air, that's going to the eagle's going to cover that. And the uh, cattle of the field, uh, the oxen going to cover that, and the beast of the field, and the lion's going to cover that. So God made a covenant, not only with Noah and his seed, but also all the animals of his creation here. They're all listed right here. But also, when I look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it reminds me of him. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man, wasn't he? He was the son of God and became the son of man. Even though he was the son of man, he was not the son of a man. Just remember that. He was the son of man, but he was not the son of a man. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, had the courage of a lion, didn't he? Remember how he faced those Pharisees, and those Sadducees, and those chief priests and scribes and elders on a daily basis, how they were always uh, uh, conspiring against him, always trying to kill him, always trying to catch him in this, that, and the other. And he never, my friends, uh, was overcome by them, but he always emerged victorious. Remember the time he went into the temple? And the Lord, the Bible says the Lord was angry. And see, being angry is not a sin. But when you get angry, if you're not careful, you will sin. That's why Paul says, be, not, uh, be, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun come down upon your wrath. Uh, it's best to get over your anger as quick as possible. Because if you're not, you'll be, you, first thing you know, you've been said something you shouldn't have said. And you may be done something you shouldn't have done. There have been people who committed crimes who wouldn't have committed them if they hadn't been angry. And said things that got them in a lot of trouble. Some maybe got them fired from a job. They said when they were angry. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. But the Lord was angry with righteous indignation. He had a right to be angry. Because he went to his father's house. He says, should we call the house of prayer? He went to his father's house. They turned to a house of merchandise. 
They were buying and selling and making gain in God's house for carnal reasons and carnal pleasures and everything else. And the Lord Jesus Christ took a scourge of cords and went in there and drove every one of them out and turned over the tables of the money changers. One man did that. The Lord did that. He didn't have the disciples with him. He didn't have a small army with him. I don't know how many people was in that temple, but the Lord drove every single one of them out individually and personally, my friends, by himself. He had the courage of the lion, did he not? You see that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can find all these concerning the Lord there. And then the Lord as the oxen. There's never been one who labored any more fervently and diligently than the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about an oxen as a symbolic of gospel ministers and, and gospel laborers. But no one ever labored as extensively as the Lord Jesus Christ. He never took a day off. He never took a day of vacation. His day was from rising sun to setting sun, my friends, and he often spent uh, the night in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer all night long. Our Lord was diligent, was he not? And then the eyes of an eagle. You know, the eagle can soar in great heights and see just the smallest little rodent, a rat, a mouse, or something in a field and see it from hundreds of feet up in the air and can come swooping down and take in its claws. And also that eagle can soar. And the Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, taught his disciples doctrine, enabled them to, to lift their eyes above the cares of this world and to see things far more glorious than what this world could ever offer. And so it is with gospel preachers and gospel ministers today. We believe that every man God's ever called into gospel ministry was a man literally. The qualifications given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 demand that. If any man desire the office of a bishop, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. He must be the husband of one wife. A woman cannot meet that qualification, at least not legally. All right, we won't go into that. But anyway, at least not legally. Must be a man. And a gospel minister is going to be effective. If he's ever going to be profitable and beneficial, he's going to have to have the courage of a lion. There's going to be things in God's word that he must preach that by nature he'd rather not preach. He'd rather just take a detour and go around it. And see, that was a great difference between a, a prophet and a priest, by the way. I wanted to mention that. See, Ezekiel was a priest. And a priest and a prophet uh, both were responsible positions. A priest represented the people to God and the prophet represented God to the people. But the prophet oftentimes was despised and rejected and oftentimes his life was in danger. John the Baptist lost his head. Jeremiah was placed into a, to a dungeon, into, you know, into a pit, right? But see, the priest, he could study the written word of God, know what his duties and responsibilities were, uh, deal with the externals there in the tabernacle and also in the temple and take care of things of that nature and go about his business and everybody esteemed the priesthood highly. But the prophet wasn't so. The prophet never knew what he was going to have to say, when he was going to say it, and to who he was going to have to say it to. You remember that case with Nathan and David? When David committed adultery with Bathsheba? And remember how he put Uriah on the forefront of the, of the battle in an effort to have him slain, and he was successful. And I guess David could soothe his conscience, thinking, well, somebody's got to be on the forefront of the battle. Why not Uriah? This greatly displeased God, and God sent the prophet Nathan to talk to him about it. And Nathan came to David, and he says, there was a traveler who came by, and there was a rich man with a, you know, a, a great many sheep. He had sheep in abundance. He was a wealthy man. And there was this other man. He just had one little ewe lamb. And that man of great wealth, instead of taking one of his flock he could spare easily, he takes the little ewe lamb away from the man who leaves him with nothing. And David got so angry about this, he says, this man shall pay fourfold. And Nathan looked him right in the eyes and says, well, you're the man. That was the job of a prophet. He never knew what he was going to say, to who he was going to say it, and when he was going to say it until God told him where he was going to have to travel, where he was going to have to be. The hardship of a prophet, my friends, in great contrast to that of a priest. And Ezekiel was a priest called to be a prophet. So a minister of the gospel must be a man. He must have the courage of a lion. He must labor fervently and diligently as an oxen does. You know, an oxen is not a racehorse. An oxen is not a fag, but he's steady. <laughs> he's dependable. He can carry a far heavier load than a racehorse can. And he has to carry a load that most of God's people have no idea in the world what kind of load he's trying to carry. 
I told Karen yesterday I was in the bank and I invited this lady to come to church. And uh, we, we've gotten to know each other over time, one thing or another. And uh, she, she, she told me she appreciated that. And they were pretty involved where they went and got to a place here in Portland. And I told her, well, I was the pastor, pastor of the church where I was inviting her to. And she said, well, that makes a difference. She said, we may just come down there and see you. I said, well, we'll sure we'll be glad to have you. But I told Karen, I got in the car. And I said, you know, when I invite people to church, you fall in one of two categories. One, they're already highly involved somewhere, and I can't pry them away. Or number two, they have no interest whatsoever. She says, you got a hard enough trouble just getting your own members to come to church. And that came from her lips, you know. <laughs> and you know what I said? I said, isn't that the truth? <laughs> isn't that the truth? <laughs> anyway, got to have the courage of the lion, got to have the face of an oxen, and got to have the face of an eagle. You know, when the Lord blesses the man of God from time to time, as I've already stated with the Lord Jesus Christ, He's able to lift God's spirits up. He's able to get them where they can think about things on high run, things beneath down here. He's able to get God's people for a little while at least to forget the trials of this world, the trials of this life. And get them to really have their hope, my friends, and uh, strengthened and their assurance, my friends, uh, uh, you know, uh, to be uh, given to them in greater proportion than they've had in times past. In other words, that eagle soars through the sky. I remember going to the Grand Canyon and standing on the rim and looking down. And I seen an eagle just soaring through the sky. And it's highly unusual to be uh, above the eagle, but you, I was above the eagle there, so far down to the valley. It was such a wonderful, glorious sight. Normally I see the eagle soaring, my friends, up in the sky, way above all the things of this world right here. And that's what the gospel minister's objective is to try to help God's people along those lines. This was going what this is what Ezekiel saw. He saw the four living creatures. Those four living creatures, we're told in Ezekiel 10, 15, were cherubims. And the spirit of the living God was in these four living creatures. And they their wings, those four wings stretched upward, pointing to God. And those, of those four wings, two of them, my friends, joined together and two covered their bodies. And you'll find that's always the case. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train did fill the temple. And he saw six seraphims, had to saw the seraphims with six wings, two covered their face, two covered their feet, and two covered their body. Ministers of the gospel are not up here for show. Ministers of the gospel, my friends, are not up here to draw attention to themselves. They're up here to get you to focus on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son. That's my objective every single time. Just like John the Baptist said uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a forerunner of Christ. And he said, I must uh, decrease that he might increase. He wanted to be covered, my friends. He didn't want to be noticed. He did not want to be in the limelight. He did not want the spotlight on him. He wanted the spotlight to be on the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a friend of the bridegroom. And so we find these wings, two, touched together this way. And it, it, well, I'll get to that in just a minute. Anyway, and the two covered their feet and those wings, they, even though it mentions that, it says the wings stretched upward toward God. And it's whithersoever the Spirit God and directed them, that's where they went. They went where God directed, and God guided. This reminds me of the 16th chapter of the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul was wanting to go into Asia, and the Holy Spirit forbade him to go. They wanted to go by Athena, and the Holy Spirit forbade him to go there, suffered him not. So there he just waited where he was at. And that night, God appeared to him in a vision. There was a man in Macedonia who said, come over here and help us. And when he woke up the next morning, he said, Feeling surely the Lord had called us to go in this way, we took a straight course. And you'll find the word straight used two times here in this chapter about how their feet, my friends, were straight feet, and they went in a straight path. And they went forward and upward, and they went only where the Holy Spirit guided and directed them to go. And what in the world did Paul find when he got over there? By the riverside, he found Lydia again, that cellar of purple. He found out why God wanted him there and why he did not want him over there or why he did not want him over there. 
Later on in the Bible, I find where Bithynia and Asia are mentioned where the gospel went. But on this occasion here, God didn't allow him to go there. God warned him over there because he knew there was a woman named Lydia that needed his help. God was working on both ends of the line, you see. Then you're going to find where Ezekiel has a vision of wheels. I, I, I remember a, a few years ago, I said, I'm no artist. I said, I'm on, there's no picture of these uh, living creatures, of course. So I got me a pad and a pen, and I started drawing, uh, drawing out based upon the instructions given here. I was going to try to figure out what they looked like. And when I got through, I thought, man, this is a mess. <laughs> this is a mess. <laughs> so I don't have to have that kind of picture. But here's some wheels. And in these wheels are lights, all in these wheels. And there's a wheel within a wheel. And these wheels intersected with the four living uh, creatures here. And they intersected in such a way, the Bible says, when they went somewhere and wanted to go a different direction, they didn't have to turn. They just went as flashes of lightning. Now, this is a glorious sight that Ezekiel's seeing right here. See, if I just read this chapter by itself, isolated from the Word of God, I'm not going to be able to figure any of this out. But if I search the Word of God and compare Scripture with Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture, I begin to kind of get a little vision here, a kind of little image and picture of what's under consideration. See, this is a vision coming right out of heaven, right under Ezekiel from God Himself. So here's these wheels. Let's take a quick look at this. Ezekiel chapter 1. Verse, six, verse 15, Now as I beheld the living creature, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creature with his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like the color of beryl, and they four had one likeness. Notice the oneness and the likeness. In fact, Ezekiel uh, used the word like and likeness 25 times. He said, this is like this. There's a likeness of this, you see. And their appearance and their work was as a wheel in the middle of a wheel. If you can visualize that. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for the rings, they were so high that they were made dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes. I said lights, I meant eyes a while ago. Full of eyes, round about them four. What does this tell me here? When I search out the eyes of God, I find where the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on behalf of those uh, who put their trust in him. This is teaching me an attribute of God that's so important for you to see. And that's the attribute of God's omnipresence and God's, om God's omniscience. God, my friends, uh, is everywhere present and nowhere absent. God sees everything, knows everything. And there's nothing that ever escapes the eye of God or the knowledge or wisdom of God. He sees and knows all things. That's what this is telling me right here with those uh, uh, eyes being in the rim of these wheels. And these wheels, as they turn in every direction, go with us over the Spirit, directs them. Again, that brings me to the omnipresence of God. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23, the Lord asked three questions. He said, am I a God near off and not a God nearby? The answer is implied. The Lord's asking the question. Am I a God afar off and not a God nearby? No, he's a God in both places. No such thing as God being in one place and not in another place. Can any man hide himself in secret places? I shall not see him. No, he cannot. There's no place you could ever go, no door you could ever hide behind, no bed you could ever crawl under, my friends, that God doesn't see you and know exactly where you're at and what's going on in your life. Do not I feel heaven and earth? Yes, I do. The Lord asked these three questions, and the answer to these three questions is implied. Am I a God of off, not a God nearby? Yes, God is everywhere. Can a man hide himself in secret places? No, he cannot. Because God's eye sees everything. Do not I feel heaven and earth? Yes, he does. Now that's sobering to me, but very uh, comforting to me to know that wherever I'm at, God knows exactly what I stand in need of. Uh, God can take care of me. God can guide me. God can direct me. God can provide for me. God can shelter me. I try to pray daily for God's protective hand and leading hand in my life. I believe in the omnipresence of God, in the omniscience of God. And we're going to see before we wind up here the omnipotence of God. And that's what God is showing Ezekiel here. He's going to give himself a, a view to Ezekiel himself, my friends. And it's glorious language that words could not possibly use to describe, so to speak. So he gives him these visions from heaven. 
And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. <laughs> Whithersoever the Spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, those stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. See, you don't have to get everything just perfect and all this to get the picture, get the image, get the, what the writer is trying to tell you right here. And then he speaks about the firmament. Now, first time we read about the firmament is in Genesis chapter 1, right? The work of God's creation. When God created the heaven and the earth. And he says that, you know, darkness upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And there was, there was the light. My friend, you know, that was not the sun and the moon, by the way, there or the stars. God himself is light. He just spoke light into existence. Then he speaks about the firmament. The word firmament means expansion. Up in the sky up there, there's an expansion. It said this firmament divided the waters from above the firmament from the waters below the firmament. When the flood came, the flood came from three directions. The flood came from the depths of this earth here. The oceans erupted and water came up. And water came down from the, from the heaven itself. And then we have the, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. It came from three sources. So he speaks about this firmament he shows here. Again, this takes you back to Genesis chapter 1. And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creatures as the color of the terrible crystals stretched forth over their heads above. And under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Every one had two which covered on this side. Every one had two which covered on that side. Their bodies. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters as the voice of the Almighty. The voice of speech as the noise of a host when they stood, let down their wings. Are you beginning to get a, a better picture here of what the Lord is showing Ezekiel? The voice, they made a noise. That noise describes the noise of many waters and the noise of, of the great voice of the Almighty. I read in Revelation chapter 1 where John sees a glorified view of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says when he spoke, as the voice of many waters. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you, you'll know what the roar sounds like. Have you ever been there? Oh, the roar is astounding, my friends. Uh, the power uh, of that water going over, the noise that it makes. Uh, in Psalms 29, Beginning about verse 3, it says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic and full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. The voice of the Lord shaketh, the, my friends, uh, uh, the mountains of this earth. The voice of the Lord causes the hinds to cave. When God's voice speaks, my friends, there is reaction. There is results. And when I think about the voice of the Lord, I think about how powerful it is in the work of regeneration. John 5, 25. When Jesus said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming and else when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When God speaks to a sinner, my friend, dead in trespass and sin, who's the object of his love, one of his dear ones, one of his people, and one of his elect, when he speaks, they hear, they're in a state of death and sin, but they hear, and God gives life. The voice of the Lord is powerful. What's going to get your body out of the grave in the morning of the resurrection? It's going to be the voice of God. Verse 28, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming, when they are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. I'm going to tell you one thing. The preacher's voice never got one out of a state of death and sin. The preacher's voice is not going to get your body out of the grave. But the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ will. It got you, my friends, out of that state of nature into a state of grace. It's going to get your body out of this earth one time. Oh, sometime, my friends, at the last day and take you home to glory. It's going to be the voice of Jesus Christ. His voice is full of majesty. His voice is powerful. His voice shaketh the cedars and breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Just speaks and the cedars are split. You ever tried to split, a, split some wood the old timey way? <laughs> God doesn't, God doesn't need a chisel. He doesn't need an axe. Uh, he, don't, he don't need a machine. God just speaks and those cedars are split wide open. That's what God is showing Ezekiel here. And there was a voice from the front that was over their heads and when they looked, they let down their wings and above the front there was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above upon it. One who that man is. You got any idea who that man might be? 
I believe it's a, it's a, the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, my friends. He was upon that throne. And I want you to know, uh, no matter how tough things are, it was a tough time. It was a, a, a dreadful time for those exiles. It was a dark time for them. As I've already mentioned, uh, as they look back on their history, they must have wondered, uh, is God still the God of the heaven and the God of the earth? And God is letting Ezekiel know, yes, I am. I'm still here. I'm still working behind the scenes. I'm the sovereign God of the universe. I'm omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. You see him that way this morning? Isaiah said in Isaiah 6 and 1, the year that King Uzziah died, must have been a tough time, but when he died, I saw the Lord. And I saw him high and lifted up, and his throne was above, uh, you know, sitting upon his throne, and his train did fill the temple. That's what you need to see, brethren. We're living in gloomy times and dark times, aren't we? The economy is, you know, is what it is. Uh, Inflation is sky high. It's costing a lot more to put in a tank of gas. Uh, we got the immigrant problem and all the other things. And I'm not trying to be political here this morning. I'm just stating facts. And you know what I just said is true. But I'm telling you, in these dark times we're living in, God is still upon his throne. And God is still omnipotent. God is still omnipresent. God is still omniscient. And he's going to take care of us and bring us through to the other side. He's not giving us a spirit of fear. He's giving us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. He saw a throne. And I saw as the color of amber the appearance of fire round about within from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward. I saw as it were the appearance of fire and he had brightness round about. I hope you see this. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. What a blessing it is to have a view of God that makes you feel like that you're just nothing because that's exactly what you are by nature. But while you see that you're nothing, you see that your God is everything. While you see how weak you are, you see how great and powerful that he is. Ezekiel saw the rainbow Remember, God put a bow in the sky to symbolize his covenant that he'd never destroy the earth by flood again. You see, Noah saw the bow. I mentioned this uh, maybe a year ago in a message. Noah saw the bow after the storm. But Ezekiel sees the bow above the storm. And you go to Revelation chapter 4, you'll find where the apostle John saw a rainbow. And he saw the rainbow before the storm. Look for the bow, brother. Look for the rainbow. I, it's just such a shame that uh, that has been taken as a symbol of immorality today. And I'm telling you, the bow that we read in the Word of God is not a symbol of immorality. It's a symbol of the everlasting covenant of God. You see that bow before the storm, and storms have been, and storms are going to come down the road. I'm telling you, there's never going to be a time when there's not going to be storms. So I want to see that bow before the storm comes. I want to see that bow when the storm is here. And I want to see that storm, that bow, my friends, when the storm is past, to remind me before and during and after the storms that God Almighty is still upon his throne and his word is sure and I can have assurance in God's word. And that's why I want to read about it, study about it, and encourage you to do the same thing. And we meet and we just preach about it, right? Please read Ezekiel. 